The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, with that, let's go ahead and go to the book of Acts on the back of your bulletin, provided an outline there. I'd like to do that each week for those who it's helpful for. Kind of a roadmap showing us where we're headed. And the sermon today is... Acts chapter 16, 25 to 40. We're going to finish chapter 16. The title is Jesus Delivers. Jesus Delivers in Philippi. Jesus Delivers. Synonym for that is Jesus Saves. Jesus Rescues. And that's in keeping with his mission. Jesus, who was a real historical person. Everything we know about him is found in the Bible. The converse is also true. There's nothing definitively true that we know about Jesus that is not found in the Bible. If you think you know that the, there's something true about Jesus, it has to be vetted through Scripture. And the Bible is the only authoritative source on Jesus, what he taught and who he is. So we have a reliable record of who Jesus is as a historical person in the Bible. Jesus, when he came 2,000 years ago, was very clear on why he came into the world. He wasn't just born through happenstance as a normal human being. He came purposefully as the eternal God of the universe, literally came down to the earth that he created. And he came as God. God became a man. He was 100% God, 100% man, while on earth for 33 years. That's true of no one else in history. He was sinless. He was perfect. He still is. He took on a human body for the first time. He still has that body. It's now a glorified, resurrected, supernatural body. So it's in a, a glorified form, but it's still a physical body. His identity, identity has, been, has been preserved intact. He still has the marks on his hands. And on his feet from the nails that crucified him when he was here on earth, the Lord Jesus. We know all of this because that's what the Bible says about Jesus. We also know that his purpose for coming and why he was born was he came into the world to be a savior. To, to rescue people, to rescue sinners. To rescue sinners that he loved as the creator of the universe and the creator of humanity. Jesus himself said that why he came into this world. In the Gospel of Luke, made it clear. He said, the Son of Man has come that he might seek and save those who are lost. And he, he meant lost spiritually, to seek and to save. So Jesus came on a seek and rescue mission. And he fulfilled that mission. And the way he would seek and save sinners was he would go to the cross. He would go and be crucified as a criminal, as a sinner, as someone who was guilty, although he never did anything wrong. But he did that knowingly. He did that willingly. He and the Father and the Spirit planned that in eternity past. And then when he came to earth, he died on the cross willingly and subjected himself to the wrath of the Father, who is different than Jesus. The Father is different than Jesus. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. There's one God, three persons, and Jesus is... God the Son. And he died on the cross 
willingly and while he was on the cross being crucified as a criminal from a human point of view, from a spiritual and God the Father's point of view, he was also being punished as a sinner and a criminal by God the Father. And God the Father unleashed his full fury of eternal, almighty, infinite wrath on Jesus, his beloved son. So that Jesus might be a substitute for sinners. And Jesus, as the God-man, absorbed the full fury of God's deserved holy wrath for all sinners that would repent and turn to him. Even though Jesus did nothing wrong. And then Jesus died. Even though he was the God-man, he died somehow. Was buried in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Three days later, rose again from the dead in fulfillment of Scripture. He raised himself from the dead. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead, and God the Father raised him from the dead. And then 40 days later, he ascended. He went back into heaven to be with the Father and to be with the Holy Spirit, whom he had existed with for all eternity. Because Jesus is eternal. There's never a time where Jesus did not exist. He's not a created being. He is almighty, eternal God. He didn't become God. He always has been God. This is the Jesus of the Bible. Very, very important just to clarify that in light of our passage here that Jesus delivers in Philippi. Let's go ahead and look at uh, Acts chapter 16. For those of you who weren't here, just to give you the context, the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. It's about 50 A.D., He's on the front end of this missionary journey that will take him almost 3,000 miles from Antioch and Asia above Palestine over there in Israel, all the way across Asia Minor, going into Europe, circling back around, and then eventually coming back over the course of almost three years. Paul is traveling on this missionary journey with his team that he selected. In Acts 13, it was God's team, God's mission. Acts 13, God's missionary team. When God said, set apart for me, said God, Paul and Barnabas. That was God's team. And now in Acts 16, Acts 16, Paul's missionary team, where Paul said, no, I want to take Silas, not John Mark. So this missionary team is the Apostle Paul, who is a saved Jew, Silas, a saved Jew, Luke, a saved Gentile, and Timothy, young Timothy, maybe late teenager, Gentile, well, half and half, half Jewish, half Gentile. That constitutes the core of the missionary team. Maybe they had other servants or gathered them along the way, very possible, but that is the foundation of the missionary team. So here they are. And they go through Asia Minor, and then they go into what's called Macedonia in the Bible here, which is just northern Greece, which for us is southeastern Europe. And so this is Paul's first entrance into Europe. And the first place he lands is the city of Philippi, and that's where we are in Philippi. A significant city, a large city in that time, 2,000 years ago. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have a picture of... T- this is a recent picture of the city of Philippi over there in what was historically Macedonia, which today we would say is kind of like northern Greece, or like I said, southeastern Europe, just above the Mediterranean Sea. And I believe in 1914, they started doing excavations of this particular site in Philippi and what has been uncovered. And you can go see this today, actually. See it, walk around, touch the stones. 
That's the Agora. That is the marketplace in Philippi. Some of you have actually been there to Philippi. It's there today. And you know what? It's right there where it says the, the Bible said it would be. Isn't that amazing? The geography and the demographics and the details and the historicity and the cities that are mentioned in the book of Acts are historical. They are accurate. And that's why it's, um, it's pretty pathetic when critics of the Bible always try to take pot shots at the Bible and discredit it and say it doesn't have any integrity or veracity in terms of history and it's myth and it's fiction and it's just symbolic and it's archaic and it's not, you can't rely on it. That's a crock. They don't know. That is futile. That is foolish that they say that. Because you just take the book of Acts alone and look at all the cities that are mentioned by Luke who wrote this based on eyewitnesses. And Luke himself went to some of these places and visited these cities. And these places are still intact and can be visited. Because so much of the cities back then were made of rock and limestone and are preserved with time. So the Bible is historic. It is reliable. Philippi, a city that you can go and visit Today, this particular picture is of the open market or the agora, it was called, uh, the public marketplace where a lot of different transactions took place for the people in the city. They would go there and have their probably no doubt their daily farmer's market uh, where they'd barter and sell things, clothes, food. Uh, they would also have public civic uh, duties and processes there, such as judgments were made, trials were held, also a place for the slave market. So basically, city business was conducted in this place. And we just read in Acts chapter 16 that Paul and Silas were out preaching publicly. And then they cast a demon out of the slave girl who was bringing lucrative income for her masters. And that money stopped coming in. And so the slave owners got very upset and angry. And so they immediately jumped on Paul and Silas. And it says they dragged Paul and Silas through the city to this marketplace right here. Just drag them in, throw them down right in front of the magistrates or the policemen who were in charge there and had a kangaroo, mock, phony, illegitimate, unjust trial. Right here, publicly. And the city began to gather. It was in the, probably in the middle of the day. Or later part of the day. So there's a lot of people there. They witnessed this. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are uh, arrested. They're condemned. They oh, And then they're... Right there publicly, their clothes are ripped off. They're stripped, probably almost naked. And the authorities had them beaten with rods, probably on the back, which was typical. Beat them, I don't know, like with a acoustic from what you played pool with or something like that. Very hard and just, just pummeled them. Sometimes they did that. They pummel people to death. Broken ribs, shredded their skin on their back, uh, bleeding, severely beaten. And then they're dragged to the prison, the inner dungeon, and they're thrown into an inner dungeon that was there in Philippi. They're locked behind a gate or a door. They're sh- literally shackled, hands and feet. All the while, bleeding, broken, bruised, no comfort provided whatsoever. Cold, dirty, dangerous prison where they were at. So that was where we left off. Then there was a specific jailer who was assigned to watch them. And that jailer takes his job seriously. So let's pick up the story here of where they got arrested. And here we see Jesus do miracles. Jesus does amazing things. Jesus delivers. 
He's in the business of doing that. 25 through 40, I came up with four points just to help us walk through this narrative. So let's go ahead and look at the first point of how Jesus delivers. Point number one is Jesus delivered the missionaries from prison. When I say delivered, I'm referring to different kinds of deliverance, um, not just spiritual deliverance, being forgiven of your sin, delivered from the spiritual authority of the devil or future condemnation in hell. I mean, they are literally delivered, graciously, physically, from prison. And Jesus did it. Go ahead and look at it, verse 25. So here they are, Paul and Barnabas, sorry, Paul and Silas, brutally beaten. By the way, it never refers to Luke or Timothy here. It's no longer we, 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 as Luke was saying. Now it's them, them, them. So Luke is writing, saying them as in Paul and Silas. Luke is not, somehow Luke and Timothy managed to escape. And it could be that, remember they were going around preaching throughout the city. And it said this slave girl who was demon possessed started screaming at the top of their lungs, following Paul and Silas wherever they went. And Luke wherever they went. And it said for many days. Many days. This could have been for weeks. Day after day after day after day after day. And on one of these days, that's when everything unraveled. And Paul cast out the demon. And at some point, Luke and Timothy were able to get away. So they were not arrested. So that when Paul and Silas are chased out of town, Luke is left behind in the city of Philippi. That's very, very important. So the missionaries here that are delivered are Paul and Silas and so they're thrown into prison. We don't know how long they were there, but we do know verse 25 says about midnight, and midnight means midnight. It is dark. There are no lights in this dungeon. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? Whining and complaining about the pain, the injustice, the lack of fair treatment, the fact that they were Roman citizens and all their rights were undermined. No. What are they doing? Paul and Silas were praying. Isn't that amazing? They are praying. They are talking to God. Conversation with God. The God that they know. The God that they know personally. That's prayer. Prayer is actually having an intelligent conversation with the creator and savior of the universe on a personal, intimate level. Praying is not just meditating on some word or mantra over and over and over again as the pagan, mindless Gentiles do, said Jesus. That's not efficacious. That doesn't do anything. God hates that. God wants to talk to his people intimately, personally. And we do that. We can talk quietly, privately in our minds to God. We can talk verbally to him. And he speaks to us through the truth of his word and the spirit of God who lives in every Christian. Through the truth of his word. And so here is Paul and Silas. They are praying to God. Not only that, they are and they're not just whining. And they're not praying the imprecatory psalms of judgment upon their enemies. God, come down and destroy and kill these unjust Romans and the magistrates, and they didn't give us a fair trial, and wipe them out. And the slave owner... No, they didn't do that. Paul and Silas, they are praying, and they are singing hymns of praise. They are praising God. This is, this is part of prayer, singing. No doubt, probably singing... Paul was an Old Testament rabbi, Old Testament scholar par excellence. 
No one was better. Knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. Probably had many of these psalms in the Old Testament memorized. The Hallel Psalms, the psalms of praise. That's what they were for. That was their songbook. So he's literally singing psalms of praise to God. Thanking God, not whining and complaining to God. Shackled, naked, bleeding, in pain, cold, vulnerable to disease, forgotten. That's the context. In the dark. By the way, there are, in this prison, there are other prisoners. And the other prisoners can hear Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas, they don't care. Their love for God was uninhibited. Their love for Jesus was unabashed. They didn't care. They were not embarrassed. They would live for Christ. They would die for Christ. Paul had no fear of man. So he is praying. He's singing out loud. Him and Silas are singing together, and the prisoners were there listening to them. (laughs) What What are they listening to? So these pagan prisoners are listening to the proclamation of the word of God in the Psalms and may very well be some hymns that had newly been revealed or made up. There's actually a hymn recorded in the book of Philippians about Jesus. And there are, there's hymns about Jesus that were new, given to the apostles in the book of Timothy and other places. So may very well be some of these New Testament hymns were also being sung. And so it is praise to God, communication with God, thanking God, and also a witness to unbelievers. This is amazing. Paul is just amazing as a Christian. He wasn't a perfect person. He wasn't a perfect. He was a sinner. He was a sinner. Yet he was an exemplary Christian. And just as strong as his passion was when he was an unsaved Jew who hated Christians and went to the ends of the earth to shut it down because he thought it was a false religion, willing to arrest them and kill them. When he got saved, he was just as passionate in his love for Jesus, the gospel, and trying to live out Christianity. And he did it in a model and exemplary way. And here's a perfect example. Anybody here been subjected to anything worse than the Apostle Paul during the course of his ministry or even up to his ministry at this point? Up to this point, the Apostle Paul had been chased out of town several times. He had been pummeled almost to the point of death, possibly to the point of death with stones. He had just been brutalized almost to the point of death by public beating. He delineates other horrible things that happened to him probably up to this point in the book of 2 Corinthians. So he's been through worse than most people would ever face in a lifetime, if ever, to the point of death. And he doesn't have a pity party for himself. That's why Paul is so amazing. His eyes are not on himself. His problems, oh, woe is me. I don't deserve this. I don't know. I want my rights. I'm all alone. Nobody likes me. Nobody cares. God, you don't like me. You don't. He's not doing that. He is trusting himself solely and wholly to the mercy of God, the grace of God. And if I die, I die. For it is far better to die and be with Christ. That's what he said to the Philippians. And instead of whining and complaining, he's giving praise to God. He's got eyes off self. That's why he could write to the Philippians 11 years later, which he did to this church in Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Well, who are you, Paul? Well, he was just the guy that got beat almost to the point of death in your city. Unjustly. 
And he responded not by complaining and whining. He responded by focusing on God, his greatness, his sovereignty, and rejoicing deep within his soul. Paul was not a hypocrite. Paul was an exemplary, model, mature Christian who walked by faith and trusted the grace of God at every turn. Even when circumstances were bad and horrific. And for Paul, once he started his ministry, they were usually bad and horrific. So this is a challenge for me, as I challenge myself this week, or anybody here. If you're a Christian, please come see me after the service. If you have been subjected to a life that is worse than the Apostle Paul had. And I would like to glean wisdom from you, because I know I haven't. So this is very helpful. And that's why Paul could say with confidence, as an apostle, as he was moved by the Holy Spirit in the book of Corinthians, when he said to fellow Christians, be followers of me as I also am of Christ. He didn't mean he was perfect. But he said there are objective, tangible things you can look at in my life, the way I lived my life in certain circumstances, where I submitted myself to the sovereignty of God, and I didn't get self-absorbed. I endured suffering, trusting God. I endured persecution, trusting God. And here's an example of that. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus underwent unjust treatment, even to the point of death. He never complained. He never opened his mouth. He never resisted. He trusted the Father. The Father didn't release him. The Father didn't let him go. The Father allowed him to be crucified unjustly, and even the Father himself poured out his wrath on Jesus. And that's what Paul means. Be followers of me as I also am a Christian. That is the calling of a Christian. That's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1 to those Christians in Philippi 11 years later after this happened, he said, you know, I suffered when I was here in Philippi unjustly. I was brutally beaten. I was thrown into prison. I suffered for Christ. But that's not only my calling, Christian. That is the calling of every believer. Philippians 1.29. For you were called not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That is the call of a Christian. And it happens in many different ways and many different manifestations. That's up to God and his grace and up to his sovereignty and his providence in your life. You don't have to go out and get beaten almost to death in the name of Jesus to be spiritual. That's not what he meant. That's just a call to be faithful. Be faithful. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be a coward. Don't fear man. Trust yourself with God. Trust the results to God no matter what's going on in your form of persecution or suffering in the name of Jesus, no doubt will look different than the Apostle Paul's. It, maybe it's just verbal mockery. Maybe it's just somebody making fun of you in the workplace, drawing a picture of you in the bathroom because you're one of those weirdo fundamentalist Christians who has ethics and actually believes in following the rules and obeying the boss and not ripping off the company, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you've got to trust God. Every individual is different. So here's Paul and Silas praying, singing hymns, praise to God in the midst of suffering. And the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26, and suddenly, out of nowhere, and suddenly, and then in the middle of the verse it says, immediately, suddenly and immediately. This is a response by God to the prayers of Paul and Silas. This is not chance. This is not coincidence. This is not to be explained naturalistically. That, oh, back then, and we know that there was a universal earthquake because of the 
uh, seismic shift that was in the uh, plate, tectonic plates at that time, somewhere in the uh, Macedonian rift, blah, 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 blah. Now, this was God supernaturally intervening in a miraculous way that can't be duplicated. It's at his sovereign discretion. It happened suddenly. It happened immediately, right when Paul was praying. God intervened. In other words, this is not normative. So every time we pray, we shouldn't expect God to create an earthquake. Dear God, my in-laws are here. They are giving me a headache. Please send an earthquake. Not. So this won't be replicated. It's not normative. This is God's sovereign discretion. Suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Here in California, you may have lived through an earthquake like this. I know we have at our house, the McManus house, where the house was severely shaken. I was thrown from the couch, the TV almost thrown on my head, the ceiling panels falling down on my head, the cat out the door. We didn't see her for three weeks, but anyway. But this is a different kind of earthquake. This is God intervening so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. Wow, isn't that amazing? Not coincidental. All the prison doors were open. What does that mean all? Where all these other prisoners were. Boom, they pop open. These guilty criminals, they deserve to be there other than Paul and Silas. The other criminals, they probably deserve to be there. Very, very possible. They, they could have just run out. Well, they didn't. Everyone's chains were unfastened. See, that tells you this is not a normal earthquake. If Paul is standing in the stocks, like it says he was, his hands and his feet chained, there's an earthquake, and all of a sudden the chains fell off of his hands. That actually has nothing to do with a normal earthquake. That is God intervening very specifically in this time in a supernatural way. So out of God's grace, he delivered Paul and Silas. Could be that Paul was praying, dear God, please... Please deliver me. Maybe he's praying one of those psalms where David prayed that. Dear God, my my life is literally threatened. My enemies are breathing down my neck. Save me. And David was praying for physical rescue, not salvation. Well, God answered that prayer. Jesus did. Jesus delivered the missionaries from prison. Again, that's at God's discretion. He doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want him to. It's just the way... Way it is. We pray according to the will of God. We depend upon His grace. We wait in faith. See what He does. And amazingly, God chose to release Paul from prison here. But God wasn't going to always do that. Paul gets imprisoned again. As a matter of fact, 11 years later, when he's writing the Philippians, he's probably chained to two Roman soldiers as he's writing that letter to the Philippians. Then he got released from that prison. Then he gets arrested again. Goes to prison and he's not released that time. About 66 A.D., he he gets his head chopped off. So if he prayed for deliverance from that prison, God said no. Peter got arrested. He went to prison. God let him out. Peter got arrested again, again in the late 60s, and the, the Romans took his life, killed him. If Peter prayed for deliverance then, God said no. Jesus talked to the Father Friday just before his death. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass. God the Father said no. In Acts chapter 7, we saw Stephen. As they rushed upon him unjustly, took him out of the city, 
pummeled him to death. He wasn't rescued and delivered from the physical trial. They killed him. So God answers these prayers at his discretion. Sovereignly. Very important. We walk by faith, not by sight. You can't take something that happened uniquely 2,000 years ago and then try to make it normative of everything in your life and then get disappointed with God because he didn't answer your prayer and deliver you the way he delivered Paul here. Well, wow, really? So you want to live like Paul? Uh Uh-oh. Really? Consistently? Okay, then get ready to get your head chopped off. So Paul's trusting God. God is gracious, and God literally delivers. And he doesn't just deliver Paul to deliver Paul. He delivers Paul because he wants Paul to do missions, evangelism. He's got a soul to save. And that's in the next section. So let's go ahead and look at it. Point number two. After Jesus delivered the missionaries from prison, Jesus delivered the jailer from death, 27 and 28. When the jailer awoke, when the jailer awoke, so the jailer was sleeping through the singing and praise of Paul and Silas. The prisoners were not sleeping. They were listening and hearing. They were probably closer in proximity to Paul and Silas as they were singing. Wherever the jailer was, he couldn't hear the singing. It didn't wake him up. The jailer was sleeping. The jailer was sleeping. It says a lot about the jailer. From what I understand, according to the best sources we have regarding 2,000 years ago and in the Roman Empire and Roman prisons, this jailer, that was a tremendous responsibility to be a jailer. It's like being a sheriff, actually. You have authority. You have the keys. You can make decisions. You can operate unilaterally. Sometimes it's a lucrative position. You're in a position of taking bribes and big ones. There's a limited chain of command of who you're responsible to. There's much you can do without accountability. People fear you. Being a jailer in a Roman colony typically was a prized position. And from what we understand, to be a jailer, you had to purchase that position, that job. You had to bid for it. And this jailer got the job. And many times the jailer in a Roman colony was a Roman centurion or the equivalent thereof. A Roman centurion. This is kind of like a, a general, a military general. He is experienced. He is seasoned. He is hardened from warfare, killing, death. He is callous. He is a pagan. As far as we know, he is totally irreligious. He's the first irreligious person that we've met personally in this story. That's who this guy is. He's not interested in the gospel, apparently. Paul and Silas have been there for days and days and days and days. Two times in the passage, it says they were doing for days and days and days. Could have been a month or two they've been here now. Uh, No doubt this jailer, the sheriff of town, was exposed to Paul and Silas and his missionary team and what they believed as the lady was parading night and day for week after week after week. These men are slaves of the Most High God and they are proclaiming a way of salvation. No doubt the jailer heard that message. Not only that, the jailer was there in the Agora, in the open market, when the fake trial happened. So he heard what was going on. 
He knew these guys were foreigners. They were visitors in town. They were aliens. They had a weird message. It was about religion. They were different. They were proclaiming some strange deity and a way of salvation, a way to be saved. And this jailer was responsible for taking them to prison. Now, can you imagine where this jailer is dragging Paul to the prison and then taking the time to put him in the prison and put him in the stocks and put him there? And can you imagine just Paul being silent the whole time? I can't. Paul's talking and talking and talking and telling him how to be saved. Do you know who we are? This is why we came to town. Did you hear our message? We're here, we're here just to talk about Jesus. So no doubt, this jailer, even though before Paul got to town, he never heard of Jesus. By the time Paul got there in two months or so had transpired and all the events that had happened, there had been an accumulated amount of information where this jailer knew these were religious guys. They had a, a specific and different message. They kept talking about this guy named Jesus, and they also kept talking about getting saved, sozo, salvation, deliverance, whatever that is. So that's probably the context in the frame of mind of this jailer. By the way, he's a jailer. He's a seasoned soldier. He he has no fear. Typically, he has no fear. Why else would he be in the army going around subjecting himself to the enemy and flying spears and swords and death? Typically, he wouldn't be afraid in in the face of death. But there's something that changes with this jailer, and rather quickly. And it's really the work of God. The preparation of the work of God. 27 and 28. So when the jailer awoke, no doubt from the earthquake, he saw the prison doors opened. Okay, that would be a shocker. Whoa. The prison doors are open. My prisoner's going to escape. I've got to get every single one of them, recover them, or kill them, or I am dead. It's just the way it is. He has to give an accounting for all of his prisoners. That's his job. Well, there's no way I can keep all of these prisoners from escaping, especially in the dark. I can't see anything. So he draws out his sword and was about to kill himself. Suicide. Suicide. That's what people do as a last resort when they have no hope in life. Suicide. Goes on today, all around us, everywhere. He has no hope. He's about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Verse 28, that Paul cried out. How in the world Paul saw him? We don't know, but apparently the the jailer was going around looking, inspecting prison cells. No doubt Paul saw his silhouette or was within distance, could actually see him, and actually saw that he was about to kill himself with a sword. So Paul cried out. This is amazing. Again, Paul has changed. Jesus has changed Paul. Paul used to be Saul. used to go around. He hated Christians. He chased them from one country to the next. He dragged them by the hair to prison down in Jerusalem. He threw them in prison. He was responsible for the death of many Christians, both men and women. He hated Jesus with a passion. And then God saved Paul and changed him and made him a new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. The person who is in Christ is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. What is that all things? Well, it starts on the inside. God changes you on the inside. He changes your nature. Your attitudes, your will, he saves your soul. He brings you to uh, to life spiritually because spiritually you were dead. He changes the fact that you're no longer belonging to Satan. You belong to God. 
He's changed you in that he's removed the blinders of sin and the blinders of Satan so that now you can see and understand truth. He's also changed the fact that you have hope because he's put the Spirit of God in you now that you're a Christian and the Spirit of God literally lives in you and produces the fruits of the Spirit continually on your behalf. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, attributes, virtues that you now possess within yourself that you didn't have before you were a Christian. This jailer, before he was saved, he has none of that. He has no true joy. He has no new hope. He has no real love. But the Apostle Paul has been changed. Saul, who had a heart of hatred, is now Paul, who has a heart of love. The love of God has been shed abroad in his heart as a Christian. And now he loves humanity. He loves People, He loves his enemy. He loves people who don't deserve it. This jailer, there's no human reason Paul should love this jailer or want to extend any mercy to this jailer. This thug who stood there and watched a mock trial, tacitly approving it by arresting Paul and taking him into prison for no reason, throwing him into the prison, giving him no treatment whatsoever as far as we know, letting there just rot all for money, he was a part of the injustice. The human thing to do for the Apostle Paul would have been to take his revenge. Oh, good, he's going to kill himself. I hope he's successful. No, actually, I hope he misses and just suffers for a long time. People are like that. That is hatred. God filled Paul's heart with supernatural love that only comes from heaven. It only comes from God. It is not inherent in humanity. You're not born with it. We are not born with it. If you are not a Christian, you don't have this capacity to love people like Paul does. It's a gift from God. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This shows you Paul's heart. He loves his enemy. Not only that, he cares about this person. He cares about this person's well-being, who doesn't deserve it, who was his enemy, who just punished him. Not only that, Paul is suffering. He has been brutalized. And yet Paul has the sensibility, the sensitivity to be conscious of this man's state physically and also spiritually. Paul has compassion for this man. Talk about a shepherd's heart. Paul was a shepherd. Paul was a pastor. You can't be a pastor if you don't love people. You can't be a pastor if you don't care about people. You can't be biased and preferential And prejudice if you are a pastor and shepherd. You have to love all the sheep. All the sheep. The nice sheep. The friendly sheep. The cute sheep. The giving sheep. The serving sheep. The smelly sheep. The ugly sheep. The disobedient sheep. The straying sheep. And that's Paul. That's his heart. Just, this is just beautiful. And that's why Paul could say, be ye followers of me as I am of Christ. And you know what? This isn't just the attribute of a pastor. John made it clear in the first epistle of John that if you are a Christian, if you are a true born-again Christian, then God has equipped you to love other people and especially to love the brethren, to love other Christians. That is a mark of true Christianity according to John in his epistle. First John chapter 3, First John chapter 4. If you call yourself a son or, or daughter of God, and yet you don't have love for fellow Christians, then you are not a Christian, no matter what you say. You are a hypocrite or you are self-deceived. It's a basic mark of being a true Christian, loving other Christians. And it extends beyond that, loving your enemies. 
loving humanity, loving people, knowing every human being is precious, born, made in the image of God. That's really a distinctive of Christianity. Did you know it? It is. Every other worldview, every other religion, some might say, oh, yeah, we believe in the love of people. No, they don't. Not at this level. That's why last week, Christianity, the biblical ethic, supernatural love from God throughout human history has been the only religion worldview that fights tenaciously against slavery, tenaciously against human trafficking, tenaciously against all kinds of prejudice, tenaciously against uh, the abuse of women. It's clear from the Bible. This is an amazing heart of God uh, through the Apostle Paul. Paul cried out with a loud voice, being very aggressive, do not harm yourself, we are all here. Amazing in God's providence, he made all the prisoners stay, including Paul and Silas. He could have done what Peter did and jet out of the prison as the angel escorted him earlier, but that didn't happen. God had a specific purpose. So Jesus delivered the missionaries from prison, and Jesus delivered the jailer from death. And then let's go on to number three. Jesus delivered sinners from hell. This is kind of a crescendo or what it's all been leading up to. God is, you know, interested in physical rescuing. By the way, um, salvation, when that word is used in the Old Testament, many times, if not most of the time, it refers to a physical rescuing. Like being rescued from the water, rescued from drowning. Or David in the Psalms, many times, rescue me, save me, God. He's talking about being physically rescued. And then in the New Testament, the word for saved can mean different things. Uh, it can mean being physically saved. Sozo is the Greek word, sozo, to save. It can be physically delivered from imminent danger. It can also be used metaphorically, as in 1 Timothy 2, with respect to women. They will be saved through childbirth. And it can also be used spiritually, religiously, soteriologically, uh, saved meaning you are saved from your sin. You are forgiven from your sin. You're justified from your sin. And so it depends on the context. So let's look at verse 29. Point number three, Jesus delivered sinners from hell. So he hears Paul's voice. Uh, the prisoner calls for the lights, rushed in. Calls for the lights, candle, no doubt. He, wrote, he finds Paul and Silas. Now, of all the prisoners that he could choose from, he goes to Paul. Why? Well, Paul's the one that said, don't kill yourself, number one. Number two, he's the one that put Paul and Silas in shackles and no doubt heard from Paul this strange message uh, that he is here from God and Jesus the Messiah and you can be saved. And he also saw Paul, no doubt, for months now, creating a ruckus as he's going around evangelizing with this new religion as a, an ambassador from Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And so God has used many things to prepare this jailer to know that Paul and Silas, they are special. They're actually God's men. That's why he runs to Paul, of all the prisoners, runs to them trembling with fear, and he fell down. Isn't that amazing? So here's a change that's happening in this man's heart, and it is manifest. This guy goes from this fearless, callous, hardened warrior of a soldier, of a centurion probably, or a ruler in the Roman army who could care less about human beings and people and how they're treated in justice with no fear, as crass as could be. And now he's got his tail between his legs, running up to Paul and Silas. Prisoners! Helpless prisoners! 
This guy's the one with all the authority. Yet he runs into Paul, trembling literally, not from the earthquake, but from fear, falls down on his face in front of Paul and Silas. This man has been prepared by God, and God got him exactly where he wants him. If you want to be saved, if you want to be adopted into the family of God, there's a prerequisite, and you've got to be humbled. You've got to be humble before the Creator. That doesn't come naturally for human beings. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be saved, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, then you must become like this young child. Well, what's the young child? Humble, dependent, needy, crying out to their mommy and daddy all the time, help me, help me, help me. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless that is your attitude. If you are self-sufficient, independent, want nothing from God, no accountability, don't need His help, can do it yourself, you're not a candidate for salvation. You are full of pride. We're all there. We've been there. Those of us who are Christians, we were there. As hard as can be until God softened us. And God's got to do some serious tenderizing and pummeling with some of us who are particularly hard-hearted. But God had been working on this jailer. Think about it. This jailer could be in his... We don't know how old he is. He's probably an older man. Been a soldier, probably. Jailer. Dirty business. Nevertheless, since this jailer was born, the Spirit of God was working on this man's conscience his entire... So say he's 50 years old. The Spirit of God has been tenderizing this man in spite of his sin, in spite of his hardness, in spite of his pride. The Spirit of God has been relentless. That's John 16, 8, 9. Jesus said, I will send my Holy Spirit and he will... His job is to convict the world, present tense, continually be convicting sinners of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's true of every sinner right now. Whether you're doing anything or not, or I'm doing anything or not as a Christian, the Spirit of God is doing His work on that person, even before they hear the Word of God or the Gospel. And the Spirit of God is working on the conscience of every human being. He's working on the law that's written on their heart. The the truths they inherently know from birth, innately know to be true, that there is a God, they were made by Him, they're accountable to Him, they will face death, and every unbeliever fears death. That's what the Bible says. Whether they admit it or not. They try to placate it and hide over it with their false religion, false worldviews, little yoga here, little limbo there, whatever. And if they can't escape the fear, then they will take other drastic measures. Alcohol, drugs. That doesn't work. Eventually, suicide. They can't escape it. They can't escape that inherent moral nagging that is their conscience that God put there when he created them in his image. And also with their conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit who promised he would be continually working on sinners, convicting them, preparing them so that when they hear the word of God, so they when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like lightning goes off and they react one of two ways. Usually I want nothing to do with it and they harden their heart all the more Then God gives them over to their sin or they respond and God opens their heart and they are able to believe. So this man, this jailer, has been being prepared by God his whole life. And now he is brought to his knees in humility, and he is the prime candidate for salvation. He finally has some fear in his life. And so he cries out in verse 30 and said, Sirs, lords, representatives of the Almighty God, the Most High, 
What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be delivered? What must I do to be rescued? And it was probably a loaded question. How can I be delivered from this situation? How can I be delivered from getting my head lopped off by Caesar? How can I be delivered from this spiritual judge of a creator that I know I need to face because my conscience is bothering me and you've brought that to my attention through your preaching? How can I be saved? And their answer, verse 31, they said, it's amazing. I believe this is a summary statement, but it's true. The apostle Paul said, believe, here's what you need to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel according to the Bible and Christianity. Again, another distinctive of biblical Christianity, the simplicity of the truth that can save you. The simplicity of the message that will get you in a right relationship with God, your creator. Only Christianity teaches this message. Key words here. Believe Jesus. That's Christianity in a nutshell. And you've got to understand the right thing about believe. And you have to understand what it means, Jesus. So Paul, verse 32, doesn't just say that. It's just not a little bumper sticker. Believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. Oh, okay, I believe in Jesus. That was not sufficient. That wasn't what Paul was expecting. He's trying to tell him. First, he tells him the answer. You really want to be saved? Then it's all about Jesus believing in him. Oh, okay, I'm willing to do that. Kate, what do I need to do? Well, here's what you need to do. Verse 32. And Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him. They did it right there in the jail. This could have been for another two-hour Bible study they had. As they are dripping with blood and sweat, in pain, and they're evangelizing this jailer. All the prisoners around, they're still there. They're listening to the gospel. No doubt some of these prisoners got saved and they ended up being a part of the church at Philippi that Paul would write a letter to 11 years later. As God changes every single one of them, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together. So they spoke exactly what did they speak to this man. They spoke the gospel. What is the minimum amount that a human being needs to believe in order to be saved? The minimum amount. The answer is the gospel. You don't have to believe more than the gospel to be saved. In other words, So I believe in gospel and I've got to stop smoking cigarettes before I can be saved? No. God didn't say you have to stop smoking cigarettes. Believe the gospel. After you get saved, you'll probably want to stop smoking cigarettes. And God will give you the Holy Spirit to help you in time. So it's not believing more than the gospel. It's not believing less than the gospel either. What is the gospel? The good news. Who Jesus is and what he did. Who Jesus is and what he did. That's believing in the gospel. And believing is also... A part of repenting is a part of believing. So they no doubt explain that to them as well. So they spoke the word of God. They did it thoroughly, completely. Uh, we know from all of Paul's writings what the complete message was. God is the creator. We come into this world fallen, sinful because of Adam. We come into this world born, condemned, separated from God, inherently sinful. Jesus said you need to be born again spiritually. In other words, you need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to admit you are a sinner, acknowledge you are a sinner, that you need him. You're separated from God. You can't earn your way to God. You can't do good works. You can't do righteous deeds. You can't do religious practices in order to earn God's favor. That's not how it works. It's not based on meritorious deeds that you do in this life so that in the next life, God will be pleased with your works for forgiveness. Salvation is totally apart from human works. It is only the work of God that matters. It's the only the work of Jesus Christ that he did on the cross that matters. And that's what they're explaining to him. Believe in Jesus means to believe in Jesus for who he is. 
He is the creator. He is eternal. He is the master. He is the judge. You must bow the knee to, to him. He will judge you the moment you breathe your last in this life. And he will judge you based on one thing. He will let you into heaven based on one thing. And that is what you believe in and about him. The Lord Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the master. You also believe all of his teaching that you've heard. Where he called people to repent. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 and 15. Jesus went proclaiming, saying, repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus preached. You must repent of your sin. Acknowledge you're a sinner. You can't be saved unless you admit and understand you're a sinner. And only God can save you. You need to believe there's only one way to heaven, and it is only through Jesus. It's not other religions. It's not through Buddha or Muhammad or Allah or good deeds. One way, Jesus only. The narrow way. Few there be that find it. This is the word of the Lord that was spoken to them. Believe You believe in this Jesus. Who he is and what he did. The promise is you will be saved. You and your whole household. What that means? If you get saved, you, anybody in your house that hears the same message and they respond in faith, they also can be saved. This doesn't mean that babies should be baptized. Like some would try to tell us. We don't know there are babies in that household. Babies don't get saved by understanding the gospel and then repenting of sin. But some would tell us that. That's not what it means. So they spoke the word of God, verse 32, to them together with all who were in his house. So they had a Bible study that was extended Bible study. And there was a, a great response. God had prepared the hearts of all those people. And it could be that this jailer's home became an outpost for the kingdom of God there in Philippi, along with Lydia. Lydia was a wealthy woman. And so Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy had been staying at Lydia's house for weeks now in Philippi. So that probably became a house church. Could very well be that this jailer's home became a house church as well. The first Baptist church and the second Baptist church right there in Philippi. Verse 33, and he took them that very hour, that same night. So the jailer takes, so the jailer hears the word of God. He hears about Jesus. He's convicted of his sin. He repents of his sin. He believes in Paul's message. He gets saved. He's born again. He's a Christian. He's a new creature. He's uh, transferred from the kingdom of Satan now into the kingdom of almighty God. And he is a new creation from the inside out. And he acts accordingly. In verse 33 says, he took Paul and Silas, that very hour of the night, probably took them home, washed their wounds. All of a sudden, he cares about them because he's a new man. He's a believer. Washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. There it is. Obedience. That's how we know he's a truly born-again Christian. He's not a phony. He wasn't superficial. God changed him. He's doing good works because he's a Christian, not to become a Christian. He's baptized because he's a Christian, not to become a Christian. And many in his household. Verse 34, and he brought them into his house, set food before them. Now he's feeding Paul and Silas. They're having dinner at probably 3 in the morning. He rejoiced greatly. Now he has joy for the first time in his life. And that's the Spirit of God who came to reside in him the moment he believed. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and you have access to true supernatural joy. If you are not a Christian today, you don't have that. He rejoiced greatly having believed in God along with his house. Absolutely awesome. Jesus is in the business of delivering sinners from hell. And then finally, number four. Jesus delivered the law from injustice. Remember that, that phony trial 
where justice was totally skirted and twisted and perverted. And there was no fair trial. And then I said last week, truth always comes to the surface. Always comes to the surface. And we have evidence of it here. Number four, Jesus delivered the law from injustice. Verse 35. Now, when day came, the next day, the chief magistrates, these are the guys that had Paul beat up and thrown in prison. The chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. No doubt they heard about the earthquake. Maybe they felt it themselves. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, maybe those men were from God. Let's get them out of town. A-S-A-P. Let them go. Verse 36. Then the jailer, who's now a Christian, the Christian jailer, reported these words to Paul, saying the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Jailer probably thought Paul was happy about that. Oh, goody, we get to leave. This is the second time Paul could have been released and left the prison and refuses to. Verse 37, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans. So Paul is now publicizing that he's a Roman, a Roman citizen and had all rights and privileges to a fair and legitimate Roman public trial. He didn't get it. His rights were deprived. We are Romans. They threw us into prison and now, and now they're sending us away secretly. Are you kidding me? I don't think so. No, indeed. But let them, let those big shot magistrates come themselves and bring us out. Okay, corral. Head to head, mano y mano. Here it is. Verse 38, the policeman reported these words. So the police come to get Paul, and then Paul says that. And so the policeman reported these words to the chief magistrates. Uh, 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 Paul wants to see you. Uh, uh, he's not leaving. Uh, uh. No wonder verse 38 says they were afraid. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They, oh, what, really? Paul and Silas were Roman citizens? We violated Roman law? Oh, the magistrates now were subject to Caesar and either fine, imprisonment, or death. That's why they were afraid. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans and they came and appealed. So now they get down on their knees and they're groveling. Oh, Paul, please. Oh, so, oh forgive us. Please, please go away. Please leave town. Sorry, we'll never do it again. We've made a copa. No. They came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And Paul was insistent he ain't leaving. He ain't leaving. Paul's not sinful by doing this, by the way. Paul is fulfilling the command of Jesus when Jesus said to Christians or believers, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God. There are two domains when you're here on earth. We're citizens of heaven and of earth, and you have to balance those accordingly. And there are times where you can appeal to Caesar. You can appeal to the law. Paul will do this later. I appeal to Caesar. That is legitimate. Christians can appeal to Caesar, to the law. You're at home. Somebody's trying to break into your house. You appeal to Caesar. 911, policeman, please come rescue me. And if you have to shoot the guy, good. That's appealing to Caesar. That's legitimate. The law is for evil, wicked people. First Timothy chapter 1. His, lights have been, his rights have been... And he's, by the way, he's not, he's not looking out for himself here. He is thinking about ministry, the church, and the church he's going to leave behind in Philippi. His fellow assistant, Luke and Timothy, he doesn't want Luke and Timothy subjected to this either, this injustice. He's going to put the fear of God into these leaders of this city and leave his mark so that God can protect Luke, Timothy, the church of Philippi, so that it can grow and blossom, and it will. Verse 40, 
so they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia. So finally they say, get out of town. And Paul just says, okay, we're leaving. And then he goes, he doesn't get out of town. He goes to Lydia's house. And when they saw the brethren there at Lydia's house, the new house church, Paul and Silas, they encouraged them and then they departed. So it could have been that Luke was there and Timothy telling them all that happened and transpired and it was brutal and yet God was gracious and we survived and we have more ministry ahead of us and now we have believers here and you'll never believe that Roman centurion jailer, that ruthless thug, he got saved. And you guys can have Bible study there next Tuesday at his house and he'll give you food. Amazing. Well, I'm going to close with this, Philippians 4.15. So Paul leaves this brand new, infant, tiny, little church few believers in the city of Philippi. A couple years later, Paul's going to circle back around and see that this church is growing. It's being blessed by God. And then 11 years later, he's going to write a love letter to the Philippians. And here's what he said in Philippians 4.15. Paul was the master church planner, planted many churches in many different cities, dozens and dozens and dozens. But he says this to the Philippian church. They were special. That's why I call Philippians the happy book. Philippians 4.15, Paul finishes his letter writing to these Philippians. Could be, you know, in the audience here is the jailer. Maybe the jailer is reading. Maybe he's a deacon or an elder in the church now. Isn't that cool? Still wearing his Roman garb with his helmet and sword. And Anyway, I don't know what he was wearing, but we don't know who was there. But he says to this to the Philippians, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. That's awesome. God's spirit, God's gospel didn't just change the jailer. He changed an entire community of people, giving them the love of God based on their embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, all for his glory. With that, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and the privilege once... Again, we have to go to your word as the people of God. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the deliverer, the savior, so patient, gracious, merciful, not giving us sinners what we ultimately deserve, which is your wrath, wrath in this life, wrath in the next life with eternal hell because you're a holy God. Thank you for sparing us from that and thank you that it only comes for that simple message, truly believing in the Lord Jesus, who he is and and what he did. Thank you for rescuing us. And God, we do pray for those that we know and those that we love who don't know you personally. Pray that you would continue to work on their hearts with your Holy Spirit working on their conscience with the truth of the gospel and always empowering us to be courageous, bold, not fearing man, but being mouthpieces for you in obedience regardless of the consequences. We trust you for your grace. To that end, all for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.